This podcast is presented to you by the School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University. The School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University exists to prepare men and women for Christian ministry, namely the work of the Lord's Church. Our two degrees, the Master of Divinity and the Doctor of Ministry, are carefully designed to equip and encourage ministers for the calling that God has placed on their lives. The Master of Divinity offers six concentrations, and the Doctor of Ministry can be obtained in either Christian ministries or pastoral care and counseling. Should God have called you to any number of ministry vocations, or if you aren't quite sure which one yet, you will find a place here at Gardner-Webb where, as one of our former deans once said, your heart and your head can be friends. Join us for an upcoming Green Lectures on March the 6th, featuring Dr. Rob Kanoy speaking on the Book of Revelation, John's Vision of the Cross. For more information on the Divinity School and upcoming events, visit gardner-webb.edu backslash divinity. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. Before we get to our conversation with Melvin Bray, we want to make you aware of the next couple of episodes as well as this week's sponsor. For the next few episodes, you'll hear interviews with the Director for Faith for Justice, Michelle Higgins, Jennifer Harvey, the author of Raising White Kids, Bringing Up Children in a Racially Unjust America, an extended conversation with Brian McLaren. This episode is sponsored to you by Travis Peterson and Launch Mission Creative. Former Cooperative Baptist Fellowship graphic design specialist, Travis Peterson is an award-winning designer and dedicates his work to helping churches, ministries, and missional organizations. Travis worked with CBF during their rebranding phase and helped CBF win multiple awards for designs on CBF's public relations material, advertising, the CBF Journal Assembly Guidebook, Fellowship Magazine, and more. As a former youth minister, graphic design missionary, and now owner of Launch Mission Creative, Travis shares Matthew 5.16, In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Launch Mission Creative will help your church, ministry, and missional organization shine a little brighter through brand identity in the form of logo, business cards, and letterheads, printed material like weekly church bulletins, brochures, annual reports, and event signage, or even a new website or social media campaign. Best of all, he'll work with your budget. Contact Travis today at launchmissioncreative.com or search for Launch Mission Creative on Facebook. Launch Mission Creative. We serve people who serve people. To our regular listeners, you might be thinking, that's not the music I normally hear at this point in the podcast. Well, Captain Obvious is about to award you with a special gift. That's right, in partnership with Chalice Press, we will be giving away five free copies of Melvin Bray's new book, Better, Waking Up to Who We Could Be. So here's how to receive one of the five free copies. Be the first of five to tweet at Chalice Press, Melvin Bray, CBF, and me, Andy Hale. So tweet, I'm listening to the at CBF Info podcast with at Hale Andy, featuring at the Melvin Bray and at Chalice Press. Okay, it's a little wordy, but you've got this. I'm listening to at CBF Info podcast with at Hale Andy, featuring at the Melvin Bray and at Chalice Press. We hope you win.
Our guest for this week's podcast is an Emmy award-winning storyteller, writer, educator, and social entrepreneur. Along with his wife and three kids in the West End neighborhood of Southwest Atlanta, Melvin Bray is working to cultivate more sustainable approaches to faith and civic engagement. Melvin is an author, editor, and contributor for multiple periodicals and books. Melvin, thank you for taking the time to join us in the conversation. Hey, thank you for having me, Andy, for sure. Well, I'm familiar with your work, uh, but others aren't. So tell us a little bit more about who you are. <laughs> That's a good question. I, I, I'm finally getting to the point where I can, I can do that in, in short now. So let's see. Uh, I am a facilitator and strategist that works. Uh, I work through a firm called Collaborinth, uh, where I work with uh communities of goodwill that are trying to figure out how to make beloved community tangible. And uh, some of the words that are kind of watchwords for today, for, for this moment in time that kind of go into that are, are words like um, equity, diversity, inclusion, um, conversations around intersectionality, conversations around sustainability, but how do we make beloved community a thing, uh, a reality, uh, a place where we can all live and, and, and thrive? And then uh, I'm also an author, and as an author, I recently uh, wrote a book called Better, Waking Up to Who We Could Be, which uh, trades a lot on kind of this identity of storyteller, which, uh, I, I didn't know I was going to grow up to be a storyteller. I just have loved stories since childhood. Uh, I had a mother who was kind enough to read to me most every night. And, um, and then when I, when I got older, I thought I was gonna be a pastor, um, fell in love with story as a form of, of sermon, and then ended up as a language arts educator. And so I got to, to teach literature and teach people how to tell story and uh, kept asking questions about story long enough till folks started calling me a storyteller, maybe even before I even, even told my first story publicly. Now, my wife um, is living in a constant eye roll as I share a story. She says, I'm just like my father. I constantly repeat stories and jokes, but you actually... That's have... all right if they're working, right? <laughs> but, <laughs> you <know>? Yeah. <laughs> you've won awards for your storytelling. I can't say that. Specifically, you've won multiple awards uh, for the Atlanta public television series, Mindbusters. Uh, tell us, wh what is a day in the life of a storyteller? Mm. Well, you know, that's assuming that the storytelling is like a vocation. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure it's that. I think it's a burden that one imposes on other people <laughs> because I can't ever get straight to the answer to a question. I'm always trying to tell a story about it. Um, but, but part of it is that uh, it's, it's my way into that kind of... Uh, emotional and intuitive side of myself um, because I, I tend to be extremely logical and extremely analytic and
just that part of my way to, to be connected um, on the human level, um, heart to heart, as opposed to just head to head, mind to mind, uh, is, is, is to reside a story um, and then to, to share that. And uh, all of a sudden, then people can, can feel what I'm, what, what I'm communicating and not just hear it uh, and, and evaluate it for, for, uh, for whatever intellectual value it has. Um, but, you know, uh, so here in my family, so my kids, uh, some of what they have to experience being with a storyteller is that uh, whenever they walk up to ask me a question, it's going to be much longer than they anticipated. <laughs> and then uh, I am likely to finish with my own kind of theme music for whatever story that is. So I'm always kind of hearkening back to some uh, some song I grew up with, or did you know this or that and the other thing. Um, we uh, we try to end our day with some kind of uh, family ritual. Um, I, the way I grew up, we would call it family worship. And uh, oftentimes that involves me sharing some kind of uh, faith story uh, to help to help ground them in this story of God that I grew up with. And that was just kind of part of the warp and wolf of my life. Um, and then oftentimes uh, when, when, when we gather with kind of our faith community, which isn't a, a, a regular kind of weekly thing, but uh, when we gather with our faith community, oftentimes I'm the keeper of the story that helps frame whatever it is we're talking about. And so, I'm, and so, so, that's that's part of how storytelling kind of comes up in the re regular rhythm of life. Hmm. Well, I think I think what you do is so important because we live in such a transient um, existence. You know, it, people no longer live in the same cities they grew up in. They no longer live close to family as they once did before. For most people. And so, you know, the stories of those who came before us, the stories of those that exist now with us, you know, more often than not, the stories we know and the stories we tell are things that are through television and through music and through film, yeah. you know, so I think it's so beautiful that you, you capture um, the story of your family and help, help shape that each day. Um, well, we try, we try. And, you know, part of it is an experiment that, uh, that we don't know how it's going to turn out, right? Like, so my wife and I grew up uh, steeped in church. And so the stories and the rituals of our lives were, were defined by our parents' involvement in church. And we had the blessing of hearing those, uh, the truths in those stories and the stories themselves from multiple places. And they were repeated over and over and over again. So they shaped us uh, in a particular kind of way. Some, some of that made us uh, unintentionally hostile to the world in which we lived. Um, but much of that, uh, probably the majority of that, at least would hope so, um, whether intentionally or unintentionally shaped us in ways that made us open to beauty and to justice and to 
uh, virtue of all kinds. And so, you know, we, my wife and I, my wife Leslie and I uh, decided that we, we wanted to raise our children with faith, but not necessarily with church, which then created a particular set of, uh, of challenges around like, how, how will we shape them morally? Um, and spiritually as, 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 as people so that they're of good to the world and not just themselves. And, uh, and so that made it even more pressing that I figure out how to tell the stories of faith, um, whether they be kind of our communal uh, faith tradition stories or whether they be the, our national stories and, 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 uh, personal stories, but how, how I would tell these stories of faith to them in order to pass this thing that, that matters so much to me, uh, faith on to, to, to uh, my children and hopefully their friends. You've identified yourself as a curator, a connector, and a collaborator. What do you mean by this? <laughs> mm, I, so, Here's the thing, I, uh, I know and have in my phone the names of far too many pastors than any one non-clergy should know, right? <laughs> right? Or should have, right? Um, for whatever reasons, when I decided I wasn't going into the pastorate, uh, I still ended up in the situation where I kept being drawn into both relationship and projects with, uh, with, with clergy. And, uh, and so having done that, you know, I have this, uh, I have kind of my, my professional life, which started off in education, but then I had this whole vocational life that included that edu that work in education, but also was was uh, had me as a part of um, certain kinds of um, of faith rooted experiments and uh, and projects and uh, and I had a hard time making sense of that over the years, right? Like like understanding why I was a part. If everybody else here is 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 a minister or an elder or a brother or a sister or something like that, you know, some kind of clergy, why am I in the midst of this? Um and in the the language of faith leader was was difficult for me to uh to kind of accept. Um and so that those those terms of curator and collaborator and connector kind of came out of my, my attempts to make sense of this always being drawn into these faith-rooted projects. And, I, I, and so I was trying to say, well, I guess the contribution I make is I help connect people who, uh, who sometimes don't know each other but are willing to risk across differences uh, because I asked. I, I mean, it's not really anything greater than that. Um, uh, and then, and then, you know, this curation has to do with this notion of what does it mean to create 
accessible space or, or the accessible table that a friend of mine uh, uh, calls it. And, uh, and, and that takes some intentionality. It takes some curation. You know, we, it's easy, particularly when you're relating cross-culturally, for one culture to kind of uh, bow to the other culture and accept life, uh, accept interaction and, and, and art and music on, on whatever terms meet uh, the dominant culture. Um, and, but it's, it's a lot more difficult to say, no, that's, that, that's not enough. That's not good enough. Uh, we can do better. And so the curation came out of being involved in projects where I wanted to create space that was accessible for more than just the dominant culture involved. Um, and, then, and, and then the collaboration is just this kind of being drawn in and being a, a, a journeyman, a, a, a conversation partner, uh, sometimes a, a friendly critic uh, to, to things, but, but, uh, but continually being invited in and enjoying that opportunity to uh, be in collaboration. Plus, I, I, I realized somewhere along the way that regardless of whatever talents I, I may or may not have, they are made better in collaboration. Like that's where they really, where, where, where my, my best kind of comes forward. Hmm. Melvin, we're going to have a problem here, man. Um, I could l listen to you talk all day long. So you're going to have to keep me on track here with this interview. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting here thinking like, man, I could, I could sit here and listen to him talk all day about what he does. <laughs> fantastic stuff. That's kind oh, of you. Yeah. <laughs> Well, let's talk about, uh, let's talk about better. Um, okay. so released in 2017, better waking up to who we could be is an invitation to change the world by changing the stories we are telling. You challenge readers to consider, to see that the world as it exists today, a world of racism and sexism and xenophobia and religious mm -hmm. hatred is the result of the stories that we have listened to and continued to tell. Now, before we get to the guts of the book, I have to say that this is a deeply theological work of art. Your creativity and ability to tell stories woven into this Christological invitation to live out the way of Jesus gives readers an elevated sense of what we can be as human beings and as the church. Um, I think that is way more lofty than what I was trying to do. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> well, I, I think, um, you know, as you, as you dig into the, the, the guts of this book, um, I think one would have to have their head in the ground to know the stories that have taken place over the last five years that you address in this book. But as you write, these are just widely covered stories of the sometimes unrecognized undercurrent of the backward way of being human over the last millennia, namely racism and sexism and religious violence and so on. So was there something specifically that made you decide that now was the time to write this book? What, what motivated you to write this book? Mm. So one primary motivation was my children, right? Like, like this continuation of this project to hand this thing called faith that matters so much to me uh, off to them in a way that would be useful to them over time. All right. Um, because 
one of the things I realized as, as I tried to like share the stories, the way they were shared with, excuse me. Um, one of the things I, I, I realized as I tried to share the stories, the way they were shared with me in childhood was that, um, I didn't want my kids to grow up with the, having to deconstruct the same things I had to deconstruct in adulthood to hold on to faith. Um, I didn't want them to, to, to take in the kind of triumphalism, um, in the, uh, the open hostility to people uh, who, who are considered different um, of different faiths or different nationalities. Um, that I, I didn't want them to, to have, have this notion of, uh, you know, my God is greater than your God. And therefore I, 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 I need to, I need to, to convert you or, or, or dismiss you or whatever the case may be, these kinds of things just seemed hostile to me. Um, and so, so I, I, the book grows out of an attempt to, to help them, to give them something more beautiful. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, I, I think the other thing uh, is that As a language arts teacher, I learned that the word myth does not mean uh, lies uh, or fables. It actually means the stories around which we organize our lives. And so when we talk about Greek myth, we're talking about the stories around which persons uh, of Greek heritage, um, uh, folk who lived in ancient Greece organized their lives that said, said a lot about who they were, where they had come from, what their aspirations in the world should be, uh, what their relationship to other people should be, all of this. Um, and so I, I started to see just how operative, not the particular stories we told, but the particular ways we told those stories were in the lives of the folk around me, um, whether they be personal friends or like society at large. Um, the hostility that we, we that some show to uh, queer persons kind of grows out of a particular telling of, of certain stories in, in kind of biblical, in the biblical narrative. You know, you see past, you hear pastors joking about God made Adam and Eve and not Adam and Steve. And they completely miss the, the beauty of the creation story and all this diversity of creation that's going on. And, and God repeatedly saying, and it was good. And, 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 and the, the story echoes certain things like, and each was made after its kind, and it was good. And, 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 and this kind of, how do you tell a story that's so deeply rooted 
in this kind of diversity of creation and the best thing you can come up with out of it is God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. That's, I mean, that's just foolishness to me, <laughs> right? And so, so, so this, this idea of being able to connect certain biblical tropes and certain national tropes, uh, certain communal tropes with actual harm being done in the world said to me that, that we need to understand how these stories shape us. And we need to recognize our agency in telling these stories that, that we don't, we don't have to give that over to the most strident among us. Uh, and, 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 and then, then, we need to understand that if we can tell a more beautiful, more just, more virtue-filled story, then what that will do is inspire us to show up in better ways in the world. And so that's what I was trying to do. We need to pause and tell you about one of our presenting sponsors, Campbell University Divinity School. Are you struggling with the call of God in your life? Do you feel like you've been called to ministry? Since 1996, Campbell University Divinity School has been providing theological education that is Christ-centered, Bible-based, and ministry-focused. Our calling is to prepare individuals academically, spiritually, and practically to be faithful and skilled ministers in the world. We offer multiple master-level programs, including several dual-degree options, as well as a doctorate of ministry program. Our Master of Divinity degree is flexible enough that individuals can build a program that best suits their interest and calling. Campbell University Divinity School is intentionally inclusive of anyone who can affirm and claim Christ as Lord, the Bible as authority, and ministry as a calling, without debating the details. Our students come from many different denominations, ethnic backgrounds, and age groups. We believe that the diverse environment of our school enriches each student's experience by providing an opportunity for meaningful conversations and the possibility of learning from someone who is different from you. The most distinctive feature of our school is the way that our faculty, staff, and students care for and support each other, both in and out of the classroom. Applications for the Master Level Degree Program and the Doctor of Ministry Program are open for the upcoming Fall 2018 term. We invite you to join us for one of our Master Level Visitation Days or contact us to schedule an individual visit. Learn more about our programs and apply online at divinity.campbell.edu. Yeah, you put it a whole lot better than I I did. <laughs> so obviously, we hope our readers, our readers, our, our listeners will go and 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 purchase this book. Yes, um, please do. Yeah. So it, <laughs> but to help them kind of build a framework around it, uh, better develops uh, two complementary lines of thought. The first, there are more beautiful, more just, and more virtue-filled ways to tell our stories of faith and possibility. And second doing so gives us more beautiful, more just, more virtue-filled ways of being in this world. And you wrote in the book, we have agency to embrace a sense of ownership that transforms every encounter into one that affirms everyone's blessed and unique humanity and right to belong. What better means by which to declare our intentions, to be a human being, to respect a human being, to be given the rights of human beings in this society and on this earth today. You know, as, as I that was quoting Malcolm X there at the end, Malik El-Shabazz. Well, uh, you know, as, as I was reading this book, it was so evident for me that, um, that your faith compelled the writing. And um, so I, I wonder, how, how has your faith curated this writing and influenced your, your calling? 
So whenever I hear the word faith, I often think faith in what? Um, because I, I, and faith to what? Because I think faith is not simply belief, uncritical belief, as Brian McLaren uh, would say. But it's, uh, it's the faith to accomplish a thing. It's, it's the faith to be, to, to bring into existence the unseen. Um, and, and, and so the, the, the metaphor I latch on to in the book and that I hold for myself as, as kind of a way of talking about faith to what is a beloved community which is a metaphor made popular by Martin Luther King Jr. Even though uh, the Reverend Doctor did not, the, the metaphor does not originate with him. Um, the, uh, but this notion of beloved community, this notion that there is such a place, such a way of being uh, where we can do, do right by each other. Um, uh, do well together, help create, um, co-create the, the beauty we imagine possible in the world. Um, this is my faith. My faith is that this, this is possible. Um, and that faith was informed by the stories my mother used to tell me about Jesus. Like my, I, I was radicalized by the story of Jesus. When Jesus said, love your enemies, I had no idea what that meant because I didn't have very many enemies as a little kid. Uh, I had people that, that I didn't get along with, but I didn't think of them as enemies. It's such a powerful term, but by God, I, I, it was so beautiful. I, I, I believed it was possible. When Jesus said, pray for those who persecute you and do good for those who despitefully used you, I, you know, I had enough of that in my life to where I knew what that was about. And, and the fact that there was supposed to be some kind of life, some kind of beloved community uh, uh, beyond that was just like the most gorgeous thing in the world. Like it, it just captivated my mind. And so, so, so everything I've done, every single vocational project, that I've ever participated in, in, in life has been an attempt to test whether or not uh, this dream of beloved community is possible. Um, and, and, and my notions about that have been refined over the years, you know, like I'm, it's, it's, it, I'm not, I'm not naive as to the difficulty that it presents uh, and, and have some ideas around uh, about the, 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 the conditions that are, are necessary for it to come into to existence. But, but uh, it still is, is like the most beautiful, most compelling idea that, I, that I've ever heard. 
Well, two things. One, uh, I have to admit, I'm somewhat embarrassed. My senior thesis, uh, now to my credit, that was a long time ago. Uh, <laughs> it was on Malcolm X, and I read every single speech he ever gave. So I, the failure to recognize those um, those words of his. You know, the second thing is I, is I hear you talk about... Um, we're so willing to read the biblical narrative and take things literal where we want to take things literal, but how, how often we as American Christians have fallen short of taking the basic invitation of Christ to love God with all of our heart, mind, and soul, and to love our neighbor as ourself. That, that, that literal um, interpretation of the most basic invitation of Jesus has, has shaped your life in such a way. And, and what would it look like if America... American Christians um, stop combating so much over um, defending our political persuasions um, based on, on on partisan politics, but begin to love people in a radical way that that sought justice, that defended the the case of the oppressed and the marginalized. How much different our world would be? And and that, for me, as I read your book, that was the invitation. And, and you, you spoke about um, not only telling better stories, but you also called people to listen to other people's stories. So for you, what is, um, what is listening to other people's stories and whose stories should we be intentionally listening to? Mm. So for those who haven't read the book yet, the, the way the book is, is structured is um, kind of the telos of all the stories that are told throughout the book is this notion of beloved community. And there's this particular kind of arc. Someone might say it's the arc of justice, <laughs> but there's this particular kind of arc in, in the book where, where um, what I'm, what, what I introduce in each chapter is kind of a, uh, uh, another intuition, um, another hallmark, if you will, of beloved community, um, another condition for beloved community. And one of those conditions, I, I, I believe it's the one that, that I talk about in um, chapter four, it may not be, it might be three, um, it is, it's, uh, is this notion of uh, uh, allowing other people to tell their own stories, um, listening to other people tell their own stories. Um, and, and it grows out of, out of an understanding of the way kind of Western society was shaped, right? Like, so Western society uh, comes out of a particular project called colonization, where, um, European nations went hither and yon and decided, were given permission actually, um, by the Pope at the time uh, in, 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 I believe it was the 15th century, to, uh, to convert and to enslave and exploit every different other kind of person they found. Um, if you want to know more about that, find a uh, Google search, uh, a man by the, a, a Native American friend of mine by the name of Mark Charles, and uh, look at the doctrine 
or, or, or type in doctrine of discovery and uh, you can find out more about that. Um, and so part of colon, what colonization did was it not only claimed land that didn't belong to, to persons of European heritage, but uh, colonization also occupied space in the minds and imaginations of other people. Um, and it, it claimed the imaginations of other people for persons of European descent. And so we have a, we have a society that has grown, a culture that has grown out of that, 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 that has privileged certain people to tell anybody else's stories. And, and usually it's been, uh, historically it's been white men um, who have been privileged to tell anybody else's stories. Um, and to become authorities in the telling of anybody else's story. And, and we, we, we confer degrees and we confer uh, titles and we, we, we hire for positions uh, and, and, and declare as experts these people who are telling other people's stories. Um, and one of the things that this moment in particular, this Black Lives Matter moment, this Me Too moment, uh, and that we can continue the hashtags, water is life moment. Um, uh, one of the things that this moment, this movement moment is calling us to is the realization that that way of being the world is not only hostile, but it's over. It's over. The ground has shifted as Obama declared in his first inaugural address, right? And, 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 and yes, we've seen a resurgence of some things, but those are the, 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 the dying gasps of a way of being in the world that is, is past. And so, so now what we have to do is we have to, re, we have to recognize that people are reclaiming their own stories. They're reclaiming the right to tell their own stories. And, and so we need to stop listening to those who were privileged to tell other people's stories and start listening to those to whom those stories belong. Uh, and, and if we do, what we will find out is that there is meaning inherent in those stories that we didn't know anything about. And there are more beautiful ways of being in the world that, that our colonized imaginations couldn't figure out, couldn't uh, attain to. Um, and, and, and there, there, there is, and that justice is actually possible What the, what the, um, the Hebrew storytellers and Hebrew prophets used to call Shalom, uh, and, and described in the visions of Isaiah and, and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, this Shalom, uh, of God is actually a thing that doesn't have to wait until the second coming. If you're one whose tradition talks about the second coming, they, they, it is something that can be lived into existence in this moment. We can be a part. We together today can be a part of making the earth new if we so, I mean, if, if, if we so desire. And so that's, that, the, the, in answer to your question, that's whose stories we need to deal, deal with, people who are telling their own stories. And we need to learn how to tell our own stories. As you know, when this podcast airs, this book will have been out uh, a year. 
So what are some of the stories you've heard in response to your book? Oh, man. Um, so one story I often hear um, um, is, is, is just kind of this, uh, this gratitude for permission to reclaim the stories of faith as our own. Um, and I hear that everywhere. There's no particular one. And, and I always laugh because, like, who am I to give permission to do anything? But, um, but what, what has happened is the part of the way our faith was handed down to us was God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And we didn't realize that what we, who we were referring to as God wasn't actually God. It was actually the person before the person before the person who handed the story back down to us, right? Like, like all tellings of our stories are, are, are shaped by the cultural and lived experience of the teller, right? Um, and, and so, so, so uh, that's, that's one of the stories I hear is like this, uh, this permission, this, this refound agency. Um, another uh, story that, that, that I hear is, is, uh, is kind of the 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 way that this conversation that I'm having in kind of really in 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 a really kind of narrow context which is how we tell our faith stories has translates into other spaces into other spaces where people are trying to find um equitable ways of entering into other people's experiences and being chastened. Just, just kind of, I, I put forth in the book, this methodology that I call the compost methodology um, for, for, for telling, telling more just faith stories. And people have been able to translate that as, and found ways to enter more gracefully into uh, their sociological work, their social work work, um, found uh, they've, they've used it as, as, a, as, a, as a homiletical tool. Uh, <laughs> they've used it as, um, as a way of guiding how they enter into kind of public discourse around ethics. Uh, and so that's all, that, that's all been shocking because I, I, I wasn't necessarily expecting this kind of multiplicity of application. I have a mentor say to me one time, they would kill me if I named them, but I <laughs> <laughs> said, you know, minus the steel. Name them, name them. <laughs> <laughs> minus the steel vault and the casket, our lives are compost. And what, mm. kind, of, what kind of compost are you going to be? Mm. Uh, and so Dang, I think. I love that. That's yeah. beautiful. I'm going to have to keep take that. All right. If you quote that in another book, I want to get quoted as quoting, <laughs> quoting a mentor. So quoting, quoting, coming somebody to quoting somebody, uh, you yeah. know, but I, I think, I think your, your book uh, challenges people to consider that very question, you know, to, to keep going with your compost illustration. What kind of compost are we going to be? What kind of life are we going to leave? What kind of stories are we going to tell? What kind of stories are we going to listen to? Um, and you know, the great thing about compost, right? Like, and I, I, I kind of go into this a little bit in the book is that, Compost is the way that 
one generation gifts itself to the other, to the next. Um, and, a, and instead of holding the next hostage to whatever was, right? Like, like that was the difference. There's a difference between compost. One of the, one of the metaphors I create is kind of this, this uh, comparison or contrast between compost and petrification, right? Like when a thing petrifies, it becomes imposing in the imaginations of everything that comes behind it, right? Like it, it, it's this immovable boulder that, that, that can sometimes be blinding, that can crush, that can, can blot out um, petrification. But when we allow things to compost, what we're allowing them to do is we're allowing them to be broken down into their constituent parts and to be reconstituted however the next generation or the next user needs to reconstitute it in order for it to be of, of service to them in, in their time meeting the challenges that they face that may be different than the challenge, challenges that came before and the time that came before that may include other people than the people who were included before, right? Like, so, so, so all of a sudden you're not held hostage to the way things were. You're, you're, you're freely invited to reimagine things anew and to use as the basis the same kind of fundamentals, maybe the fundamental virtues um, that, 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 that helped inform those who came before you. Now they can inform you, but they don't inform you on the specific version of how you must show up in the world, or, or, or excuse me, I should say what you must be in the world, but I, actually they, they inform just kind of the tone and tenor, the shape of how you for, show up in the world. I guess we need to remember too that compost stinks. so as as we wane through this 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 world that is getting better i like like your glass half full approach of life Uh, well i'm i'm not necessarily saying the the glass is half full i'm just saying it can be filled yeah (laughs) (laughs) but it's gonna stink along the way until we get there it may it may it can it can so uh what's next for you Ah, what's next? Um, I am, I I guess there's, there's two things that are kind of next in me. Um, one is, is I'm doing a a great bit of my work right now kind of centers around this, uh, this, uh, model, this, this, this tool, um, called the beloved community 12 step model. And uh, uh, there's a guy, I'm blanking on his name, but he once said that uh, all models are wrong, but some models are useful. And so hopefully this model is useful, uh, even though it, it, it has some things, I mean, it, it can definitely be deconstructed in certain kinds of ways. Um, but it basically takes the, the, the 12-step model and... Um, converts it for use in tackling race systems of inequity. So racism, sexism, 
heterosexism, ecological disregard, um, any, any of these kinds of uh, supremacist logics that we find ourselves steeped in and, and now find being challenged uh, at every turn, um, it, 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 takes, it takes the challenge that's been put before us and, and, and gives us kind of a way to behave ourselves into better, right? Like, so that's, that's one of the things that's really great about the 12-step program is it didn't require, it doesn't require that one who is an addict figure everything out in order to get well. What it does is invite them to take the next faithful step or to make the next faithful move and to behave their way, their way into something more beautiful. Um, and so, so that's the, the beloved community 12-step model just seems to be helpful uh, with uh, help, helping people deal with systems of inequity, uh, for example, racism, on both a personal, kind of interpersonal communal level, as well as kind of the, the, the structural, institutional, systemic level. And uh, much of the, the, the facilitating work, that, the facilitator work that I'm doing through Collaborate right now, it kind of relates to that. Um, and then also, I have started a new writing project. I, 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 uh, I'm loath to call it a new book because uh, uh, it's, just, it's just a few written pages right at this moment, and no one has, has picked it up yet. Uh, but but my, my, my newest writing project is called Do Justly. And the subtitle is this, Creating Equity, Not Converting Skeptics. And so I'm trying to tease out this, this notion that we spend a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of money, resources, tangible resources, trying to convert skeptics, which is important work, right? Like this, this it's, it's the work of the church. It's the work of salvation, right? Like saving people from their sins. Um, it is important work but it is a qualitatively different work than doing justly. And I think sometimes we conflate the two and we think that if we can educate people, which is a form of salvation, right? Like, or if we, or if we can convince people um, or if we can train people enough that somehow that in and of itself will make the more beautiful world. And whereas all of that stuff is important, at the end of all that, the, the, the more just world doesn't exist because once you get all of that, you have to do better. Not just think, talk, and feel better towards other people, right? And so, so that's, the, that's the point of that next book and, uh, or excuse me, writing project. <laughs> and uh, I think those two things will keep my hands full for the next little bit. Well, uh, did I earn myself a sneak peek to that book before it hits the bookshelves? Hey, listen, the fact that you asked, yes. All right, sounds good. <laughs> we'll bring you back on to talk about that book when it's ready to come out. Thanks so much, Andy. Well, folks, if you want to stay connected with Melvin, he's on Twitter at the Melvin Bray. You can also visit his website, melvinbray.com. Melvin, thank you for your creativity and invitation to see an elevated sense of what it means to be human and be the church. Oh, thanks so much. And can I throw out there uh, two other websites? 
probably oh, sure. more, more, more pertinent, uh, even though my personal website has this information on it. Uh, one would be the website for the book Better. It's uh, better.melvinbray.com. Um, and then uh, for, for the facilitator work, if, if you are a part of a, a, a community of goodwill that's interested in taking that next step uh, of enacting, I, 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 I welcome uh, conversation with you. The, that website is Collaborinth, and Collaborinth is spelled C-O-L-L-A-B-Y-R-I-N-T-H, CollaborinthConsulting.com. Thanks so much. All right, you know you want a free copy of his book. So go and be the first of five to tweet, I'm listening to the at CBF Info podcast with at Andy, featuring at the Melvin Bray and at Chalice Press. Good luck. This podcast is brought to you by David Carell of Universal Creative Concepts. At UCC, they specialize in partnering with churches and ministries like yours to provide quality products for your logo and branding. David likes to find the right products that represent and fit your desired need and budget. UCC can logo virtually any product that you might be looking for. Need apparel like t-shirts, jackets, polos, socks for staff, youth groups, conferences, or from any other branding needs? UCC is your one-stop shop. UCC can provide all logoed items that you use for visitors, from pins to drinkware, or tees for VBS. David desires to be your go-to guy for all items logoed. On a personal note, I've been using David at Universal Creative Concepts since 2009, and I hope you will give him the opportunity to serve your promo needs. Whatever you want logoed, David does it. Contact him today at 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.NET. That's 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.NET. Hey, you won't be disappointed. Well, that's our episode. We'll see you next week. Visit cbf.net for more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, stories about our field personnel, chaplains, and church starters, as well as our advocacy work around the world. 